you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the book of Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 7. Revelation chapter number 3 and verse number 7. We're addressing this morning Jesus' letter to the church in the city of Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia and the church therein is one of only two city churches addressed in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 that is exclusively positive. In other words, in five of seven churches, Jesus assesses that they have a number of issues. There are some issues within those bodies that need to be addressed. In the case of the church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia, both are assessed as being good, healthy, faithful churches. Jesus has only affirmation in his evaluation of those churches. If those percentages hold, we might note, at least in the immediate context of Revelation, that only two of seven churches were entirely healthy, whereas for five of seven churches, weakness was their experience. Some weakness, some shortcoming existed. You can take that as discouragement that a majority of churches are in a weakened state, weakened by sin, weakened by unfaithfulness, or you can take it as a word of encouragement that in your weakened state, you are not alone. And in spite of your many shortcomings, in spite of our many shortcomings, Jesus continues to persevere alongside us. The city of Philadelphia is celebrated here for the faithfulness of of the church there. They are standing steadfast among the same kinds of hardships being experienced in the other churches listed here and addressed in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Jesus is not promising here deliverance from suffering or even persecution, but he will guarantee for the church in Philadelphia an open door to the new Jerusalem that awaits them on the other side. Jesus promises that whatever wrongdoing unfolds in their life by virtue of persecution and even martyrdom, he will rectify in the resurrection. When they in their mortality are clothed in immortality, when this flesh is raised to walk in the newness of life by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus yet again promises to persevere with those faithful few in Philadelphia just as he always has. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 and following. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. The Bible says, beginning in verse 7, write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and closes and no one opens, says... I know your works, because you have limited strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one is able to close. Take note. I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying. Note this. I will make them come and bow down at your feet. They will know that I have loved you. Because you've kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that's going to come over the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming quickly. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. 
the victor, I will make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Philadelphia is a city very much like the other cities that we've covered in our series and Revelation thus far. It is a city with a deep sense of indebtedness to the Roman Empire and the imperial leadership. In AD 17, the city of Philadelphia was completely destroyed by an earthquake. It was a place where earthquakes happened fairly commonly. Uh, citizens were accustomed to aftershocks and tremblings at various times along the way. But in AD 17, the city was virtually laid waste. Roman Empire sweeps in and provides the imperial funding to revitalize and reconstruct the city. And in doing so, to win favor with the citizens of the city of Philadelphia. Because of the constant earthquakes, fairly constant earthquakes, people around Philadelphia were a lot more likely to live outside the city than they were to live inside the city gates. You would come to the city to do trade, but the likelihood of a building falling on your head was a lot lower if you lived outside the city than if you lived inside the city. So many would live on the outskirts and travel in. It was a somewhat agrarian culture, agricultural culture, because of this situation where people are living on the outside and coming to the inside in order to do trade, to do business, and to interact with others. It's a city of great significance. The word Philadelphia itself means brotherly love. It's, it's named after the affection that its founder had for his own brother with no uh, ancestor to receive his inheritance, all of his earthly goods, and even the city was entrusted to the brother that he loved so dearly, and that becomes the name for the city, the city of brotherly love. Outside of these verses in the book of Revelation, it doesn't seem to hold a significant place in the history of the Christian church. There is only one faint reference to the church at Philadelphia in Christian history from Ignatius, who is an early church father and writes a letter as bishop to the church in Philadelphia. Interestingly, Ignatius is writing to the church at Philadelphia to warn them against Jewish influence. You hear reference in the, the letter to the synagogue of Satan, to Jewish persecution that they're experiencing. We've addressed this in weeks past, but it's worth noting again that the situation for the, for the Christians in the city of Philadelphia and in other areas was such that they were being now excluded from gathering together with their Jewish peers. Until now, until this point in history, Christians had existed closely alongside Jews, even gathering in the synagogue and meeting in Jewish gatherings for worship and the reading of the scriptures, sharing the Old Testament together. There were great similarities between these two groups. But over the course of time, it became clear and clear that, that there was a sharp and distinct line of difference between Christians and Jews, namely the belief in Jesus as the only begotten Son of God and the Messiah long since promised in the Old Testament. As Christians began to grow in influence, as their teaching began to be expounded and declared in the Roman Empire and in other areas, Jews began to push them out. The problem was that as Christians were being pushed out, they were being pushed from beneath the coverage that Jews had enjoyed within the Roman Empire. 
The Jews were the only ethnic, the only religious group who had received a legal exemption from the Roman Empire that they need not worship the Caesar as Lord, nor did they have to worship, nor were they compelled to worship the gods of the Roman Empire. So in pushing out the Christians and separating Christians from these Jewish synagogue gatherings and excluding Christians from their sect, they were effectively exposing Christians to the demands of the Roman Empire that they would say that Caesar is Lord, that they would say that Caesar is the Son of God, that they would now be legally compelled to worship the gods of the Roman pantheon. With the inauguration of every Caesar, there would be an attached mythology. This Caesar would, sa would be said to have descended from one of the gods of their understanding. He would be understood as the son of God. And as the highest officer in the land and believed now to be divine in part because of his descendancy from one of their gods, he would be referred to as Lord. The inscription, Caesar is Lord, is found all over the ancient Roman Empire. That's why you have this answer in the book of Revelation. There is a response to the imperial political propaganda of the day. To say that not Caesar, but Jesus is the only begotten Son of God who came down from heaven, lived without sin, died in our place, and rose again the third day. That Jesus, not Caesar, is the only one worthy of our worship and our praise. That Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. This echoes through the book of Revelation again and again and again as an answer to the political ideology of the day. It's into that setting that the church at Philadelphia is born forth. In verse 7, the Bible says, write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, the holy one, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close and closes and no one opens. It seems the chief source of persecution and pressure for the church in Philadelphia was the Jews, their exclusion of Christians from their gatherings and the further social pressures that would come along with living alongside their Jewish counterparts. Now Jesus, in identifying himself in this address to the church, chooses distinctively Jewish terminology derived from the Old Testament to, in my mind, make a certain point. All that has been claimed by the Jews for themselves as exclusive to them and cut off from you, Jesus makes reference to himself as possessing the blessings of the old covenant and then follows by promising to bestow these blessings on the very ones excluded from the place of celebrating the old covenant. There is some irony in the way that Jesus makes reference to himself here in verse 7. The Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David are all decidedly Old Testament ways of making reference to Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant promise. And he will bestow the blessings of that covenant and a new covenant signed, sealed, and delivered in his name on those who would trust and believe in his name. Now, there's some added insight into what I believe Jesus' intent to be in verse 7 by coupling that together with verse number 8. Jesus says there, I know your works. Because you have limited strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. 
Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one is able to close. Usually, in these introductions, they're being drawn exclusively from the inaugural vision of Revelation chapter 1. And there is a sense in which what Jesus says of himself is drawn from Revelation chapter 1 and that inaugural vision. The imagery of Jesus having a key, in that instance having the keys of death and hell, is present in Revelation chapter 1. But there seems to be a stronger connection between Jesus' self-description in verse 7 and an Old Testament passage than the vision of that chapter 1 vision, that inaugural vision. In other words, the connection exists between Revelation 3 and Revelation 1, but there's an even stronger connection that exists between Revelation 3 and the source of this quotation in the Old Testament. In fact, I think it's so significant to our passage, I want you to turn there with me. If you would, take your Bibles and turn over to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah chapter 22 and verse number 22. We're going to look at several verses from the chapter, but I just want to read for you the verse from which I believe Jesus is quoting. In Isaiah 22, 22, the Bible says, I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he opens, no one can close. What he closes, no one can open. It's a verbatim quotation in Revelation 3 that Jesus gives of Isaiah 22 and verse 22. This is a verse that doesn't refer to the coming Messiah. In fact, it refers to a steward in the house of David. But the context of the quotation itself is deeply insightful and I think sheds a great deal of light on Jesus' intent in Revelation chapter 3 addressing the church at Philadelphia. The chapter itself begins much like many conversations with my daddy as a teenage boy. What is wrong with you? This is the question God asked of the citizens of Jerusalem in chapter 22 and verse number 1. And then there's this series of lists, this discussion of how Israel has gone to the well of her weaponry as a nation. They have fortified their walls. They're at a point in time in their history when there's an imminent enemy invasion. There is danger afoot. And they've, and they've appealed to their natural strength. They've fortified their walls. In fact, they've been so serious about fortifying their walls, they're tearing down their houses to strengthen the walls of the city of Jerusalem. They dug a moat between the walls. In the event that one of those walls fails, they'll have the water to protect them or to slow the onslaught in the invasion. They've gathered together all of their chariots, all of their horsemen, and all of their officers. They have aligned themselves in battle array. They've done everything conceivable from a physical standpoint in order to stave off the potential invasion of a neighboring nation. However, they've made one grave mistake. Verse 11 of chapter 22 says, You made a reservoir between the walls for the waters of the ancient pool, but you didn't look to the one who made it or consider the one who created it long ago. For all of the attention that they've now given to amassing their physical abilities, their physical strengths and fortifying their walls, they have yet failed to appeal to their greatest source of strength 
who is the God who made them and has endowed them with the power of the Spirit. God is their ultimate king and protector. And yet in the moment, they have busied themselves to fortify their walls, to dig their ditches, and to ready their arms for battle while failing to go to God in prayer. The people of Jerusalem have failed to recognize that the great source of their strength is not their military fortitude, but the providence of their faithful God who has provided for their protection providentially all along the way. Now Jesus refers in Revelation 3 and 7 and 8 to the church at Philadelphia as limited in strength. I think this is a reference to the fact that there are certain limitations in number. This is not a large church. There's nothing to indicate there was anything very impressive about the church in Philadelphia. But they had learned the lesson the citizens of Jerusalem failed to learn in Isaiah 22. Rather than leaning into strength in numbers, rather than leaning into influence by might, Rather than leaning into their natural resources or personal giftedness, it seems that the church in Philadelphia had learned that we are not sufficient in and of ourselves, but Jesus is. And we are best equipped for the work to which God has called us when we appeal not to our resources, not to our numbers, not to our natural strength, but to the indwelling power of God's Holy Spirit abiding in the heart of every blood-bought believer known to man. I tend to think that at least in part, that little lesson from Israel's history is imported to the text of Revelation chapter 3, but that's not where it ends. In fact, in verse 15 of Isaiah 22, there's a man named Shebna who is mentioned here, and Shebna is a steward over the house of David. In fact, he holds the key to the house of David. That's just the way it is described. Having the key to the house of David is a significant thing. These are not the days of David. In fact, they're the days of Hezekiah. But even in these days, at any point along the way in Israel's history, to have the keys of the house of David was important, not only because it meant access to the king's palace. To be inside the king's palace was to be in an honored position. To be inside the king's palace was to be well protected. There were incredible, innumerable benefits that came with being inside the king's palace. But the steward of the key of the house of David not only had access to the king's palace, he had access and oversight of the king's treasury. Within the king's palace were all the gifts, the treasury, the inheritance of David and his descendants who came after, further accumulating great wealth as king over Israel. To have access in Revelation chapter 3 to the one who has the key to the house of David is at least in part to say that not only had they learned what it means to lean on the power of the Holy Spirit, they had been endeared by faith to the one who holds the key to the storehouse of God's great blessing and is pleased in light of their faithfulness to unlock that door to open such that no one could close and to lavish on the church in Philadelphia great blessing according to his riches in glory. Shebna, who holds the key in verses 15 and following, uses the key for his own advantage. In other words, for Shebna, holding the key means privilege. Holding the key means Popularity. Holding the key means he always makes 
the six o'clock news. But because he had used access to the king's palace and access to the treasury of David for his own notoriety, the Bible says that key would be taken away. In verse 20, the Bible says, On that day I will call for my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and tie your sash around him. I will put your authority in his hand. He'll be like a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he opens, no one can close. What he closes, no one can open. Not only is Jesus with this subtle reference suggesting perhaps The church at Philadelphia continued to lean into the power and the provision of God's Holy Spirit. Not only is Jesus here suggesting at least in part that he would throw open the doors to the king's palace and lavish his people with great blessing. He seems to go beyond that to promise access to the presence of the king. Access granted by one who would put the needs of his people even before his own. Jesus seems to be reinforcing what we know of his character. That he came not to, serve, not to be served, but to serve the needs of his people. Elevating our interest even over that of himself as he bears the cross in suffering and shame. Becoming our substitute for sin and being raised again. On the third day, Jesus says in verse eight, I know your works because you have limited strength. We might add, but have leaned into the provision of the strength of the Holy Spirit, have kept my word by the power of my Holy Spirit, have not denied my name by the power of my Holy Spirit. I have placed before you an open door that no one is able to close. I wonder because of the open door language if Jesus isn't referring here to the idea that an open door for ministry has been afforded the church at Philadelphia. That an answer to their faithfulness is an increased power for kingdom advancement, so much so that even those who have opposed the people of Jesus will eventually succumb to the power of the gospel, subjecting themselves to the lordship of Jesus. I think that verse number nine suggests this is the case. Jesus says there, take note, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying. Note this, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. One day, everyone who's made an accusation against you, who's denied the truthfulness of the gospel that has saved you from your sin, one day before that throng of people, Jesus will vindicate the righteous and prove you have been right with regards to the truth of the gospel. In sort of a sinful way, is there anything really any better than being right? I I, I really, I like to be right. Maybe you are more spiritual than I am, but I do enjoy being right. And I really like to be right when it comes to my family. Like, I have three boys, and so we watch a lot of sports in our house. It's, it's, postseason for baseball and so we're watching a lot of baseball and we watch a lot of college baseball and we play a lot of baseball and often when we're sitting around watching a baseball game if there's a a leadoff walk to begin an inning now we don't bet really because we're christians but i will say 
with a leadoff walk, I will say, under the right circumstances, hey, I bet you $1,000 he scores this inning. Okay, you got it, Dad. They owe me a million dollars. It's in the Constitution of baseball. God has written it that leadoff walks, more times than not, will score in that inning. And they can't understand this. They don't get it. It happens. Dad, how did you know that that was going to? They'll accuse me of DVRing baseball games and watching them back so that I can be right about what's about to happen. It is just a good thing to be right. Yesterday, one of our interns before the state and Arkansas game started, he texted me. He said, what's your prediction for the game? I said, 45 to 17. I texted him in the fourth quarter. Just to remind him that if they hadn't fouled it up on the kicking game, the exact score would have been 45 to 17. It is just good to be right. I like to be good in front of my kids, to be right in front of my kids. I really like to be right when it comes to my wife. But I will keep all of those examples to myself. It just feels good to be right, you know. And I, I get there can be some pride that's wrapped up in that. But it provides us with a bit of a point of reference for celebrating the reality that on the last day, every false accusation, you'll be vindicated. Not in these lesser, insignificant, fleeting ways, but by the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, standing before a mass of humanity, he looks upon you not for what you've done, but observing the righteousness of his son and says, well done, thy good and faithful servant. I'm going to bring them all before you, Jesus says, even those who have ridiculed, those who have accused, I'll make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. I think that there is both a present application of that statement and a future application. In other words, I think that what's being said is that on the last day, yes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and all who have believed savingly upon his name will be vindicated for their righteousness on that day. But there also seems to be a present day application for the church in Philadelphia. Remember that open door he promised that no one can close. Perhaps an indication that even those who have accused them would be overcome by the preaching of the gospel and make themselves subject to the authority of the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, bowing down and affirming in their earthly life that indeed Jesus Christ is Lord. Verse 10, the Bible says, because you've kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come over the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm going to be a little softer with this than I was in the previous two services because I think there is a measure of flexibility here. But I don't think that the exclusive focus of what is being described in verses 10 or 11 is the last day's return of Jesus or the protection of the church from the tribulation of the last days as it's foretold in the book of Revelation or in other passages. 
there seems to be a greater degree of urgency for the church at Philadelphia than that level of insight would help with. If my family calls me, if one of my kids calls and they says, bone's sticking out and I'm bleeding, I, I don't say to them, after this meeting is over, I'll run over and we'll check you out. I say, I'm on the way. I begin to take action. I begin to move. When Jesus says in verse 11, I am coming quickly, I don't, I don't think that is a reference to his second coming in the sense that we typically think. Remember the context for chapters two and three is that inaugural vision in which Jesus is walking in the midst of the lampstands, which are the church. I believe that in this case, and I think there are other instances of this in the New Testament, where Jesus is saying, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to address your immediate need. I'm coming to you quickly in this instance is not a reference to Jesus coming at the end of days, although that's true and verified in other passages in the New Testament, as well as in the book of Revelation. It seems in this instance to be the promise of Jesus that I'm going to come to you immediately and I'm going to address your need. I'm going to trim the lamp of the church. I'm going to empower by the work of my Holy Spirit. I am going to provide for you in every conceivable way. Jesus is saying to the church here, I'm going to keep you from the hour of testing in which the world will be tested. I realize the way that verse reads, and I'm not trying to minimize the significance of what Jesus is saying there, but I would implore you that you hold that verse in balance against the rest of the teaching of the Bible. I don't know where we ever contrived this idea that we're going to be kept or have this promise of being kept from tribulation or from suffering or from difficulty. Consider the invitation of Jesus on our life. Take up your cross and follow after me. There is no promise of a shortcut around the difficulties of the cross, no exemption from the pain and suffering of real discipleship. We are not above the master. The Apostle Paul had a strange idea when it came to encouragement. Luke says, these are Luke's words exactly, that on the second missionary journey, Paul sought to encourage the churches he had been planning. And this is the sermon. This is the way Luke captures it. Through much suffering and tribulation, you must enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that's not exactly Joel Osteen's your best life now, right? Through much suffering and tribulation must you enter the kingdom of heaven. There is no offering there of exemption from very real suffering. But Jesus does promise, and I believe this to be the focus of verse number 10. Jesus does promise that regardless of the suffering, of the hardship that you endure, that he is with you. And that he will at the end rectify all the wrongdoing in your life by the power of the resurrection. There's a New Testament scholar that I had had the privilege of studying alongside and have been influenced by when it comes to the book of Revelation. Just because I think his, word is, his work is right. And he makes reference to the book of Revelation in this way. I want to introduce you to this phrase. Because I think it's very helpful in understanding the point of the book of Revelation. He refers to the book of Revelation as the passion of the church. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, the focus of those gospels is the passion of Jesus. The last seven days, 
seven days of Jesus's life where he enters into the city of Jerusalem to the praise of all people. But eventually at the end of that week is crucified for his claims to divine sonship that he is the king of the Jews, they nail him to the cross for identifying himself as the only begotten son of God. There he dies for your sins and for mine, is buried outside the city and raised again on the third day. Jesus is received with shouts of praise, but by the end of the week he is crucified, but there is victory in his resurrection. Now think again of the invitation Jesus extends, inviting us to himself. Take up the cross and follow after me. Jesus is inviting the church to follow after the passion of our Savior in our own passion experience. So powerfully so that there's symbolism and imagery in the reality that the Gospels frame the very last days, those days of tribulation and of persecution, as a seven-year period running parallel the Passion Week of our Savior Jesus. What we're being called to do is to lay our lives down after the manner of Jesus. Jesus, in his humiliation and death, saw to the advancement of the kingdom by his exaltation to the right hand of God through his resurrection. And what Jesus is inviting us to in the book of Revelation is the passion of the church that parallels the passion of our Christ, that we would lay down our lives in humiliation, that by the exaltation of Jesus, through the gift of resurrection, the kingdom might go forward even as we humble ourselves, as we make ourselves subject to the indignities and the sufferings of this life. Are y'all tracking with me this morning? What I'm saying to you, is that God keeps us in the midst of hardship and persecution, just as he promises in this verse. But this verse is not the promise of exemption from very real hardship, interrupting, disrupting, disturbing us in the comfort of our life. Anyone, in my estimation, who says to you that we have a gospel promise that somehow, some way, we're going to bypass difficulty is simply deceiving, has missed the focus of the New Testament and the guarantee that God gives that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, I realize there can be interpretive differences with regards to the unfolding of the last days, and I don't want to get too hard on those who may hold a different view. We can sort those things out later. But specific to this particular passage, you must know in your heart of hearts that your life is not to be lived scot-free of any disruptions. We are not above our master. And you know the indignity and the, and the suffering that your Savior endured. I am excited to be able to get over to Revelation chapters 4 and 5. And I, I want to begin today and in the ne and next week to sort of set our hearts to understand and interpret those chapters right. Because in my estimation, they are the sweetest in the book of Revelation. I, I would appeal again to the example of Job chapter 1. We see Job suffering. All sorts of bad things happen to Job. And then God gives us by his word this insight into the counsels of heaven. Why things are, happen things are happening in Job's life the way they are. But Job does not get that. You ever considered that? 
reading the book of Job, you have a level of insight into Job's life that Job did not enjoy as these events were unfolding. What the book of Revelation does for us is to draw back the curtain over the councils of heaven and help us to see that there is rhyme and reason as to how God is at work in our life. It may seem chaotic, it may seem patently unfair, injustice may seem to abound, but there is rhyme and reason as to how and why God is working in our life. In the same way that God was working in the life of Job for his ultimate good and for the glory of his name, such is the case with us. There may seem to be no rhyme or reason. It may be painful. It may be unjust. The righteous may suffer. But when we draw back the curtain on the councils of heaven, what we see is one like a lamb slain before the foundation of the world who is worthy to take the scroll, orchestrating the very details of our life, working them out such that everything that unfolds, whether they be good or they be bad, whether on their face they be right or on their face they be immoral, everything is unfolding in our life for our good and for the glory of the one who died for us. Look at verse 11. I'm coming quickly. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. There seems to be an effort on the part of Jesus to note that we are not awaiting a time in history when we will reign with Jesus. Rather, we are reigning with Jesus. Sure, the fullness of that reign is yet to come. But you and I, as possessors of the power of the gospel, are sharers in the authority of Jesus, in whom has been vested all power in heaven and on earth. The focus for us tends to be on the there and then, when on the last day, Jesus comes, his kingdom is inaugurated, at least this is the way we understand it, and we join together with Jesus in his authority over all creation in the new heaven and in the new earth. But Jesus seems to be insisting here that we are presently reigning with him. Don't lose the crown you have. Jesus does not say here, be careful that you don't do anything that compromises your ability to get a crown in the future. You as a believer are actively ruling and reigning with Jesus. There are lots of times when it doesn't feel like that's the case. It feels like we're subject to earthly authorities. It feels, in fact, at times as though we're being run over by earthly authorities. But consider the earthly life of Jesus. Much was the case for him. Subjected to earthly authorities, even to the point of death on the cross. Nevertheless, he was no less the son of God and the fullness of power in his earthly ministry than we find him at the right hand of God today. The power we are endowed with, the authority we are endowed with, is a prelude to the fullness of authority that is yet to come, no doubt. But don't take for granted the significance of the crown that you bear, even today, as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. In verse 12, the Bible says, To the victor, I will make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God, and he will never go out again. I'll make him a, a pillar. We might also refer to the pillar as a column. Anyone who's ever studied any kind of history has at least seen pictures of ancient ruins from the Roman period. 
often all that remains of the ruins, all that remains of those ancient buildings are the columns. They are immovable. A work of art, thing of beauty, structurally strong. And in many cases, there's just columns that stand as a marker for us to know that once within those columns stood a great temple, a place of worship, a place of commerce, a place of trade, a place of entertainment, or a place of business. Jesus is saying to the victor, I will make you an immovable person within the temple of my God through the testing of time, where and whether you will stand and never again be moved. He goes on to say, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. This is again a way of Jesus identifying with us, a way of our identifying with Jesus. This is the counterpart to the mark of the beast imagery to come later in the book. Mark of the beast again is not about computer chips or iPhones or social security numbers or vaccines or shots of any shape, form or fashion. In fact, it's not a mark at all. To have something on your right hand, to have the mark of the beast on your right hand was to identify with the beast by virtue of your actions, the things you do with your hands. To have the mark of the beast on your forehead is to identify with the beast by virtue of the things that you think or what you believe. Here Jesus is saying, I'm going to put my name on you such that I am identifying with you as the body of Christ and you are identifying with me as the savior of the church. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. Jesus is saying through identification, I am taking possession of you and I have, I have bound you up. I have set you on a course that will culminate in your residing in the place I have prepared for you, in a place the Bible makes reference to here and in the close of Revelation as the new Jerusalem in a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 3 in this quote from Jesus is binding the whole book of Revelation together. We don't have time to go into this very much this morning, but I want you to note that all of the book of Revelation is really about the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And some of the greatest violence that's been done to the interpretation of Revelation has been done as a result of efforts to separate chapters 1 through 3 from chapters 4 through 25. These verses, referring to Revelation 21, are one of many ways the book itself is bound together. Jesus says, I'm taking possession of you, and I've created in the New Jerusalem a habitation for you. And when we get to Revelation chapter 21, where these verses are referenced again, the promise of God's presence with us is the icing on the cake. The Bible says there, God's dwelling is with man and he will live with him. They will be his people. God will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death no longer exists. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no more because the former things have passed away. This is what awaits the victor. We said a number of points along the way that what John says in the gospel of John with words, he's now saying with symbols and imagery, with pictures in the book of Revelation. When I read his promise to the church, to the victor, I will make him a pillar 
and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God in my new name. I can't help but to think of John chapter 14, that famous passage where Jesus gathers his disciples to encourage them. His death is coming. Jesus, in a great act of compassion, gathers the disciples, not to say, encourage me and build me up and help me to get geared up for what is coming, but to comfort and console them at his death. You realize what's happening there? He's going to die. He knows they're going to be grieved. Stepping over the reality of his own death and all of the difficulty that comes with that, he stoops with towel and basin to address the sorrow of those who will grieve his death. It's upside down. Jesus said to them, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place I'll return again to receive you unto me. In my Father's house are many mansions. He gives the guarantee of his presence with them there. The only honest disciple in the upper room says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and we don't know how to get there. And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. and No man can come to the Father except through me. It is true. Bible never makes us the guarantee of being exempted from real pain and suffering. But the Bible does promise that at the end of our earthly journey, at the end of our own passion experience, there awaits for us in Jesus Christ the gift and guarantee of resurrection. When and where Jesus will rectify all the wrongdoings of our life, having cleared our record of sin, and having addressed every offense ever committed against us. Brothers and sisters, you and I, by faith in Jesus, enjoy the gift of eternal life. Not, not a gift to begin upon our death, but in this moment. Yes, the fullness is to come. Right now, by faith in Jesus, we enjoy the gift of eternal life. We enjoy the blessed assurance of eternal security that come what may, God, through his son Jesus and by the power of his Holy Spirit, is with his people. We enjoy the blessed hope that one day the righteous will be vindicated. One day, spoken over our lives before a multitude of men and women and boys and girls of every tribe and tongue and nation by the merit of Christ's perfect righteousness in our place, we will hear by faith in Jesus from the Father, well done, thy good and faithful servant. And the assumption Revelation makes is that that knowledge is sufficient to sustain Come what may. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for the chance to spend these precious moments focused on such precious promises from you. Now, we've said a lot this morning. There's a lot packaged into these verses, and I'm not sure that I've really done them justice in what short time we've had. But I do pray that these gospel truths would land with weight in the hearts of those who are gathered, that you would save the lost. You would sanctify your church, call sinners to repentance, advance your kingdom by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.